when we look at this war in Ukraine, it's been 18 months in this war in Ukraine and Ukraine got devastated by this war. What was the end game for the U.S. foreign policy in Ukraine? Well, it wasn't really an end game so much as a fantasy. Uh, the United States actually believed that uh, it would uh, enable uh, Ukraine to drain Russia's resources. Uh, that was the main thing. It, it had no uh, intention or expectation that Ukraine could actually beat Russia. What it thought was, was that if uh, uh, they could get a uh, puppet leader like Zelensky to fight to the last Ukrainian, uh, every Ukrainian that died would at least absorb one Russian bullet. And that would help deplete Russia's military capacity. Uh, obviously, Russia has a lot more bullets than Ukrainians had uh, individuals. And uh, the Americans had no understanding of how large uh, Russia's manufacturing uh, company was. Uh, the uh, uh, the uh, State Department and military strategists believed the Kool-Aid that they'd been drinking. Uh, they believed the fantasy that Russia was just a gas station with atom bombs, uh, and that all Russia could do was either drop an atom bomb or else uh, let uh, the Ukrainians march right into Moscow, and all the people would get so upset that uh, Russia had lost that they'd overthrow Putin and bring back an American back Boris Yeltsin and America could then uh, repurchase uh, Russian resources and restore neoliberalism. Uh, that was a fantasy, not an end game. Uh, there was no real analysis. Uh, and there were some analysts as uh, uh, Ray McGovern uh, has explained so often that did understand what was happening and they were fired by being told, well, you're just not the corporate type. Uh, you you uh, uh, must have some reason to, to want Russia to win if you don't think that uh, we can beat it. Uh, why are you uh, pro-Russian? Uh, we're gonna put in pro-Americans. And so all they got was uh, flag waivers uh, and the uh, army generals whose uh, main hope for advancement uh, wasn't to get another star on the uniform. It was to go on the board of directors of Raytheon and uh, the military industrial complex and have uh, make real money uh, by being uh, on, on the board. So uh, the whole way in which uh, the dynamics were centered uh, were uh, not having much to do with the real military situation at all. How does America, the U.S., see the Yeltsin era? Because it seems that they are so much in love with Yeltsin as much as they hate Putin. What's the difference, in your opinion, between these two figures? That was the lost dream that uh, under Yeltsin, uh, Russia uh, backed every ruble that it issued domestically with uh, a U.S. dollar holding. In other words, for every ruble that uh, Russia uh, created for spending within its economy, it had to borrow uh, a U.S. dollar to hold in its reserves. And uh, at the beginning, I was told by uh, uh, investors, uh, Wall Street people, that they were charging Russia 100% interest per year to give Russia dollars. Now, the reality is that Russia didn't need dollars at all to create its domestic money. It could just print the money. And in fact, that's just what Russian Central Bank did. When it got the dollar, it printed the money anyway. The only difference is that it needlessly 
uh, borrowed U.S. dollars and uh, permitted the United States to come in and uh, convince the, uh, uh, the kleptocrats to register factories, oil reserves, electric utilities, everything in their own name, uh, and then to sell out. But they'd already wiped out the Russian savings through the shock therapy. So the only people that the kleptocrats could sell to after they uh, registered the companies in their own name were American investors. And uh, they sold at uh, such low prices that between 1994 and 1996, Russia was the most profitable stock market in the entire world. And in fact, um, I was working uh, with Scudder Stevens, uh, one of the uh, brokerage houses, and uh, a former student of mine was their economist. And uh, she was told she was going to be fired because she didn't invest in, uh, in Ru this Russia takeover. And she said, well, she didn't invest in it because she saw it was all going to collapse in 1997 and that it was a complete fantasy. And uh, what she was told was, ah, but you should have invested from 1994 and seven in the fantasy and then jumped out before the whole crash came. That was the mentality. The Americans wanted uh, to be able to come in and uh, re uh, to transfer Russia's raw materials, industrial capacity, uh, uh, farmland, natural resources in, uh, in their own name uh, and uh, remove it from Russia. It's a strategy that had worked uh, for third world global south countries uh, for the last 50 years. Uh, and they thought that they could do it in Russia. And uh, the problem is that uh, the Russians uh, uh, had uh, no background at all in, in Marxism. It's one of the few countries that had no Marxism at all. And without Marxism, they didn't even have classical economics. They didn't have Adam Smith or John Stuart Mill or any uh, of the economists that talked about economic rent. Uh, they didn't know what a free lunch was. Uh, they really didn't understand capitalism. Uh, they understood sort of the propaganda view that capitalism was about employers exploiting uh, wage earners, but they didn't understand that finance capitalism uh, was all about rent seeking and uh, natural resource rent and land rent. And uh, they didn't understand that what Russia could have done uh, uh, as opposed to Yeltsin was uh, what I had been advocating when I went back three times and lectured before the Duma and said, look, you have all your housing. You can give your housing to everybody who occupies it now. Give your uh, all of your real estate to its current occupants freely. You will have the lowest cost economy in the world by uh, just turning over the real estate to them. You will be an economy without land rent. And uh, in the West, America, England, 80% of bank credit, of the debt uh, uh, overhead is mortgage rent. Russia was free of all this. It could have got free of it, but the Americans convinced that uh, Russia that uh, the way to get rich was America's to emulate the neoliberalism that American students are taught in the school. What Russians didn't realize that Russia gets rich by tricking other countries into adopting neoliberalism and is getting rich off them, not off, uh, off America. Uh, they just didn't understand how capitalism worked. But do you consider the economy of Russia right now as a capitalist, as a socialist? It's an ad hoc economy. Uh, Putin and uh, uh, the people closest to him are sort of uh, directing what to do, but they haven't built what Russia's doing into 
an economic theory or an economic system. Uh, it really is all in Russia's hands. Uh, you can't call it socialism because so much of uh, Russian production is left uh, in privatized hands. But it's not finance capitalism because the uh, the the resource owners, uh, the former kleptocrats, have evolved uh, into uh, an intermediate situation where they're told, you can't just rip us all off. You have to uh, invest your money. We're letting you keep all the wealth as long as you do what a socialist country would have done. And that way, we won't have to socialize your wealth. If you do what a socialist country would done, then we can leave you in a, uh, uh, let's say, a post-Soviet, uh, uh, the final stage of uh, Stalinism was kleptocracy. Uh, so it's a kleptocracy uh, uh, under uh, public, uh, some degree of public direction that is not spelled out uh, in any uh, set of rules at all. So nobody's uh, really thought of any label for this system except uh, post-Stalinism. In your opinion, is closer to a socialist economy or a capitalist economy? It's neither. It's not really a socialist economy at all because uh, it's uh, let the banks uh, make uh, uh, make loans uh, for mortgage loans and for businesses. Uh, a socialist economy would do what China has done. They would treat money as a public utility and uh, money would be in the government's hands to create the money. And the advantage of uh, having money creation and banking in government hands is if there's an inability of, uh, to pay or if the debt burden gets so high, the government can simply write down the debt. It's politically easy to write down the debt as long as the debt's owed to you. You're writing down something owed to you. Very hard to write down debt that's owed to somebody else because then you have an incipient oligarchy. So uh, Russia is an oligarchy. Uh, that's really the way to describe it. Uh, it's an oligarchy that's under some pressure from uh, the surviving post-Soviet bureaucracy. Uh, if uh, Russia uh, provides public health and free public education, well, that's all uh, you know, partly uh, uh, on the way to socialism, but uh, it, it doesn't really have a dynamic moving either toward uh, socialist uh, planning uh, or uh, finance capitalism. It doesn't have a dynamic that's concentrating all the wealth in the hands of the financial and rent-seeking class. So uh, it, it, it's, uh, they haven't thought of a word for that yet because they haven't really uh, gone beyond, let's just do ad hoc what we do here, what we do here, and see what emerges. They're in the experimentation uh, stage that is not necessarily a bad idea. The question is, what are they going to end up doing and how are they going to institutionalize all of these economic rents that are created by oil, by gas, by other natural resources, uh, agricultural rents, and uh, real estate rents. Uh, they could have done uh, a, a lot more along those lines, and uh, it's still a very heavy rentier socialist economy. How can you have a rentier socialist economy? It sounds uh, like a hybrid. Why did the U.S. sanctions not bring the Russian economy to its needs? That really wasn't the purpose of the sanctions. Uh, the the uh, war in Ukraine wasn't a war against Russia. 
It was a war against NATO. It was the United States uh, had a nightmare, and that was that uh, Germany, other European countries, were going to see uh, their road to prosperity to lie with increasing trade and investment uh, with Russia. Uh, the Germans had an ideal that uh, they're going to export their automobiles, their industry, their washing machines and consumer goods to Russia uh, at uh, high value added industrial prices. And in exchange, they, uh, they, uh, Russia would get the money to buy these uh, German uh, exports by selling oil and gas at a very low price to Germany. And it was a circular flow of raw materials and uh, uh, industrial goods. And uh, that would make Europe increasingly prosperous, but its prosperity would be shared with Russia and Eurasia. Uh, along with uh, with China and and uh, leave the United States behind. And so uh, the sanctions uh, against Russia were America's attempt to say, we're going to make an iron curtain. Uh, and this iron curtain is to prevent you from making money with, uh, with uh, Russia. If you're going to trade, it has to be with us. Uh, so instead of buying Russian natural gas and oil, you will pay... Uh, be dependent on American liquefied natural gas at three times the price. You will have to spend five billion dollars making port uh, uh, ports large enough to uh, accept the container ships with the liquefied natural gas. We will have the power to turn off your gas. Uh, at any point, in case you ever wanted to vote socialist, uh, we can get complete control over you. Uh, this was um, uh, the sanctions against Russia were were to uh, draw a rope around Europe to tie it into dependency on the United States economy. Uh, that was the, the aim. And uh, the effect, of course, was indeed to bring uh, uh, the German industrialization uh, to an end. Uh, because uh, without Russian gas and uh, dependent on um, uh, American gas, uh, Russian industry was simply uh, not uh, competitive with other industries. So uh, it, it had lost. And uh, the Eurozone was uh, brought to its knees because if you look at the balance of payments in Europe, uh, the balance of payments was largely supported by German exports uh, in, and industrial exports. And one of the reasons that Germany was so interested in joining the Eurozone was uh, without being having your currency tied to the French, Italian, Dutch, and uh, other economies, the uh, German uh, mark would have gone up uh, just as the Swiss franc has gone up, and uh, that would have priced uh, German exports out of the market. But uh, by being tied to the rest of Europe, you had uh, uh, Southern Europe running a balance of payments deficit that was keeping the euro's exchange rate low enough so that German Germany was not priced out of the market as it ran a big trade and uh, uh, investment sur surplus. So uh, the effect was all of a sudden denying Germany from the source of energy, and energy is really the source of uh, labor productivity, well, that prevented uh, Germany from uh, uh, from running a surplus, and that uh, means that the European uh, balance of payments uh, was drained uh, in the process. And now you're going to have a weakening uh, uh, European uh, euro, and uh, more and more of a problem is going to be coming up. 
Well, the effect on your, your question really was what's the effect on Russia? Sanctions against any country are have uh, almost always backfire because the effect of sanctions is very much like creating protective tariffs for the country. When America told uh, uh, the Baltics, stop exporting your cheese and your uh, food, uh, your grain crops uh, to Russia, uh, what did Russia do? Uh, without cheese, it didn't starve to death. It said, okay, we're going to start our own cheese industry. Now it no longer de depends on Lithuania and the Baltics for cheese. Uh, and it no longer, and uh, the same thing uh, with uh, the common agricultural policy for Europe was always one of the key benefits. And uh, Europe had hoped uh, to be a grain exporter. Well, uh, once there are sanctions on Russia, Russia develops its own agriculture and its own grain. So the effect of sanctions was to make Russia independent of, of, uh, uh, of uh, the Eurozone and uh, increasingly self-reliant. And uh, that has certainly strengthened its balance of payments, not losing it. So Russia has lost the export income from its oil and gas to Europe, but it's, it's uh, uh, no longer has to pay the import charges of its uh, food and uh, the other products that it was getting before the sanctions because it's producing these uh, at home. So uh, basically, it's as if President Biden said, uh, President Putin, we love you. We want to help you. Uh, we're going to help you get rich in Russia the same way we got rich in the United States. We're going to uh, help you do uh, protective tariffs. Now, uh, your neoliberal uh, people in Russia don't tell you that, but uh, you do need protective tariffs. And since you won't enact these yourselves, you'll, uh, like we did in the 19th century, we'll have sanctions and that will help you develop your own industry. And so you can end up getting rich just the way the United States did. And um, uh, you, you'll be happier and uh, uh, much better. And uh, uh, the result is uh, exactly what you've seen. Uh, Russia is now much more independent and strong. And there's uh, no uh, uh, power that uh, America or Europe have to impose any further sanctions on Russia. When you look at the Europe right now, they're following everything U.S. says in Ukraine. Why the Europeans so much under the thumb of the U.S. foreign policy? Uh, the United States has uh, politically interfered in European affairs ever since uh, 1945. Uh, I think I, a decade or two ago, I visited uh, Berlin, for instance, uh, and uh, I was taken to, there's a big hill that uh, in Berlin, where uh, when they were uh, cleaning up the bombed out city in 1945, they took all of the uh, uh, refuse, the, the bricks and the uh, building materials that they'd uh, uh, cleaned out of the bombed out uh, buildings and they made a big hill. And on the top of the big hill, there were uh, US communications spy satellites spy offices. And uh, uh, you remember uh, maybe a decade ago, uh, turned out the Americans were listening to Angela Merkel's phone calls. Uh, the Americans uh, were uh, tapping the phones of every leading American poli of uh, European politician. And also the, uh, the Americans had scouts, the National Endowment for Democracy, meaning an endowment for neoliberal uh, 
uh, uh, uh, uh, oligarchy, uh, were looking for people like uh, uh, Miss von der Leyen or Angelina uh, uh, Baerbeck. Uh, and uh, they were looking for people who had the promise of being opportunistic, very clever, uh, and the right to uh, essentially uh, throw their career in line with helping the United States. So the United States set up throughout Europe many non-governmental organizations. And these organizations uh, were uh, basically talent scouts. Uh, they were looking for promising, entrepreneurial, ambitious, uh, opportunistic uh, business people and politicians. And uh, they would uh, find the people who were most willing to buy the uh, US uh, political Kool-Aid and uh, uh, follow the US. And uh, uh, it, uh, they were pretty much dominating European politics, uh, also through the control of the European media. And so the, Europe, the uh, uh, European Union leaders do not represent the European business interests or the economy or the European people. They represent the, uh, basically, uh, I won't say their employers, but uh, the, peop the, uh, the US uh, foundations and government that have uh, been uh, uh, promoting their careers uh, all these decades. And I've been told by uh, US Treasury officials that uh, the US can always get what it wants from Europe, because the fact is the Europeans are probably the most corrupt uh, politicians in the world. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, India, Pakistan, Europe outdoes you, according to the US. Yeah, they're, they sell out cheaper. And the US says, all we need is envelopes with $100 bills, and we have the policy. So uh, the policy, the European policy is really uh, done, designed in the United States and put in the hands of uh, the European uh, proconsuls. Uh, the euro uh, was designed uh, as a satellite currency for the, uh, uh, for the US dollar by, by Robert Mundell at the University of Chicago. Uh, and it was designed as basically an anti-labor uh, uh, policy, an anti-industrial policy. Uh, and so the uh, England uh, and continental Europe have both followed uh, the neoliberal uh, finance capitalist uh, model that uh, doesn't really help Europe, uh, but it, it locks Europe into a satellite status uh, with the United States. We know that the conflict, the war in Ukraine has hit Europe so hard. If you were an advisor to the European Union, what would you say to them as a key to get out of these problems, these economical problems that they are dealing with right now? I'd say, of course, there's a, there is an escape. Uh, I think you Germans should all move to Russia and China. Leave Europe. There is, Europe is uh, uh, what uh, Donald Rumsfeld, the U.S., uh, the head of the uh, mil military, called old Europe is a dead zone. The Eurozone is dead. It cannot be uh, revived without a radical restructuring, and it's not going to restructure. Uh, it is on a suicidal trajectory. Uh, uh, all you can do is get out of the sinking ship. There is no way that uh, uh, anything that I would tell them to uh, try to look at why China is growing and you're not. Look at uh, what you would uh, look at what your uh, industrialists have said uh, of wanting to uh, get rich and employ 
German labor by exporting to Russia. You're not doing that. Uh, you, there's no way you can break from the United States, given the corruption of your uh, politicians and the fact that you don't have an economic theory, an economic doctrine that is an alternative to neoliberalism. And without uh, uh, understanding classical economics, without understanding value and price theory and economic rent and the difference between earned and unearned income, uh, there's no way that you can uh, make an economic policy that actually works. Uh, so you don't have an economic theory, basically, except uh, uh, that uh, that is leading you into poverty. How do you see the China's economy? Because it seems to me that it's the miracle of our century. How does it work? Is is a socialist economy, capitalist economy, a combination of both? How it can be so much powerful? Well, I never grew up in a religion, so I don't believe in miracles. Uh, it was uh, partly fortuitous. Uh, it, it certainly uh, was... Uh, a socialist economy, uh, a state-run economy uh, under Mao. Uh, the danger was that it would evolve into Stalinism and Soviet uh, uh, bureaucracy and top-down. Uh, what happened was very fortuitous. Uh, I remember in the late 1970s, I met with uh, Chinese officials. And at first they, they said, well, we're uh, really developing think tanks in Shanghai. You know, we'd love you to come over and be there. But then they found out that my background was Marxist uh, because of my family. Uh, and uh, they said, well, I'm afraid you can't come. We don't want anyone who uh, believes in Marxism because we think Marxists are going to lead us into Stalinism. So what did they do? They invited Milton Friedman from the University of Chicago, uh, the arch uh, anti-government economist to come to Shanghai. And uh, he gave them all of the uh, advantages of uh, letting a hundred flowers bloom, letting private enterprise think of things that uh, governments can't really plan. Said, look, the Chinese are a very creative people. Uh, they're very entrepreneurial. Uh, let them create their own, uh, if they have a good business opportunity, uh, let them create a business. Let them get, get rich by doing it. You can't just imagine every kind of uh, uh, new kind and uh, enterprise. You, you need to have a mixed economy. And in fact, every economy since Mesopotamia, uh, in the third millennium BC has been a, a mixed economy. Uh, and so uh, the uh, you, you had under uh, Deng uh, and others saying, okay, let, we're going to have a mixed economy. We're going to let private enterprise uh, spring up. And uh, we're also going to let every city, uh, we're going to let local management go its own way. And we're going to see what works. Uh, that was their way of being pragmatic. They said, nobody can plan the entire future unless you're going to plan a, a straitjacket. And we don't want to plan a straitjacket that Stalinism had. Let's see, let's have some market reference point. And the result is uh, they became a mixed economy uh, and uh, that saved them. And uh, what China did was saying, we'll have a mixed economy and permit industrial enterprise, uh, uh, will uh, patent uh, uh, creation. Uh, you, you can make money by innovation. 
uh, but we're going to keep the commanding heights in the hands of the government. Uh, we're going to keep money as a public utility. Education is a public utility, available to all as a human right. We're going to keep uh, the, the land uh, and credit creation as a public utility. And uh, we're going to have uh, transportation as uh, public utilities, not uh, turned into monopolies for high prices. So they had the best of both worlds and they've been able so far to combine uh, to have this uh, mixed economy uh, running it. Uh, and that really is the only way I think that uh, the uh, what people talk about the effect of democracy can ever be, uh, uh, be achieved. Uh, democracy without a mixed economy without a government control of uh, money and basic uh, infrastructure uh, is going to uh, end up very quickly in an oligarchy and a financial oligarchy. And uh, uh, the only way that you can prevent it is to have a government strong enough to regulate uh, uh, richness uh, to, and private uh, wealth and ambition. So the Chinese did say, well, you know, you want to make money, you can make money. But once you make a billion dollars or so, that's pretty much uh, enough. If, if you like, uh, you can look at their, uh, how they've created Jack Ma. They said, okay, Jack, you've done, uh, created a, you know, a great business there. You've got enough money. We're not going to let uh, inequality uh, get uh, uh, so, uh, so high. We're going to have progressive taxation and you're going to have to give some, uh, uh, you're going to be limited in just how much uh, economic rent, uh, uh, technology rent uh, you can get. And that's the only way that you can actually raise living standards and for the economy as a whole, and actually have economic growth that does not succumb to debt deflation or to uh, a rentier economy. They've been able to balance it because they have uh, a, a communist party leadership that works pretty much by consensus. Uh, everybody talks about President Xi doing everything, but uh, uh, the uh, the Central Committee, uh, they work very much by consensus and uh, 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 in a pragmatic ad hoc uh, way, uh, instead of leaving it in the hands of just someone like uh, uh, in, in Russia. How would the U.S. economic war on China influence its economy and consequently BRICS in the long term? And would China be able to afford it? Well, as the uh, uh, American microchip companies have been uh, pointing out uh, in the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere, uh, an economic war against China is really an economic war against the U.S. economy. Uh, because for one thing, uh, there goes the U.S. market in China. All of a sudden, uh, as the uh, uh, you've had uh, Intel and uh, uh, the uh, the various uh, microchip companies have all said, well, if you have these sanctions against our import to China, there goes our market. How are we going to get the money to invest in new factories and new research and development if we can't make the profits off the Chinese market? Uh, it's just not going to work. And in fact, uh, once you uh, impose a sanction uh, against the Chinese microchips, uh, what did China do? It says, okay, you know, we were willing to rely on the United States for microchips that helps uh, link our economies. We want a peaceful relationship with the American economy. Uh, but once you're 
uh, uh, not provide, uh, you're using uh, uh, sanctions as an export weapon, saying that you'll uh, 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 try to disrupt our economy by not providing something that we need in our production chains, then we're going to have to do it ourselves. So now uh, what America has done, it's lost the microchip market in China. It, everything that it has sanctioned against China, it has lost permanently and irreversibly to China because once another country has been sanctioned by the United States or uh, Europe uh, and it has to create its own industry and any industry can, uh, you can't really prevent other countries from uh, applying a new technology. Uh, once you develop this, they're not going to say, oh, now we're going to go back and I'm sorry, we're going to fire everybody that, uh, and close down all the factories we've made so we can depend on you once again. Uh, that's gone. America has lost this forever. So America, the, uh, the, the victim of America's war in China has been the U.S. economy itself. And that's why it, it's in what looks like a terminal downward spiral. It's uh, designed as policy. America's policy is a downward spiker, spiral. It began under President Clinton as an anti-labor policy. Let's, uh, we need to reduce American wages to increase profits. Let's uh, uh, hire uh, low-priced Chinese labor. And uh, it, this has led to uh, a reaction and it's led to uh, now we're sanctioning China. Uh, the, the whole uh, American foreign policy has been anti-labor, anti-industrial, uh, and it's been a form of finance capitalism that is the antithesis of industrial capitalism, which naturally was evolving into a mixed economy and socialism, and it's uh, reversed all of this. So actually, there's there's nothing that America can do to really hurt China. But uh, China can say, all right, well, now that we can't uh, 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 import uh, chips and other sanctioned products from you, uh, we don't need to uh, earn dollars by exporting. So we're going to stop exporting uh, rare earth materials. We're going to stop exporting our own chips and telephone. Uh, you know, now uh, we're, we're going to go our way, you go your way. Uh, and uh, uh, all, uh, China's able to go its own way because it has a mixed economy. America doesn't have any plans for going its own way uh, because its idea of making money in industry is simply to buy an industry, close it down, and turn its factory into gentrif gentrified housing. Uh, that's not a plan that is uh, sustainable in a growing world economy. What would be the best element to be considered for the economy of a country when we compare China and the U.S., when you compare their GDP? U.S. is greater than China. When when you look at the GDP at PPP, China is greater. The same thing is happening for the comparison between Russia and Germany. Considering GDP at PPP, Russia is better than Germany. Which one is better to evaluate, to assess a country? Traditional GDP or GDP at PPP? There is only one group of uh, profession in the entire world that pays attention to GDP as a measure of strength, and that's economists. Uh, and uh, it's completely worthless. Uh, I don't think people... people uh, I, I could ask you, what do you think GDP is? What do you think it measures? It's all the, Tell all me. the things that the country produces in one year. Uh-huh. Well, let's... Uh, the the uh, 
trick word there is production. For instance, uh, if uh, suppose that uh, right now uh, a, a lot of Americans are unable to pay their credit card debt and their uh, use their debt on automobiles, arrears are going up. And uh, the there, uh, in addition to the nineteen percent uh, annual credit card char, uh, interest rate, they now ha uh, are paying thirty percent uh, penalty uh, rates. Uh, credit card companies make more money on penalties than interest. When uh, uh, are these penalties part of GDP? When people default and have to pay more? <laughs> well, you're being reasonable. You, I can see you're not an economist. Good for you. Uh, they are part of the U.S. GDP. They're called providing financial services. Uh, do you think if uh, you're in a, uh, you have your own house and uh, the value of your house goes up and uh, people have to pay more in rent, uh, uh, you're just sitting there and uh, it's the same house. But uh, uh, you say, uh, if I rented this out, I'd have to pay more rent for my house uh, that I'm getting. Is that GDP? No. Oh, you're being reasonable again. You're not an <laughs> economist. That's counted. That's seven percent of uh, American GDP. The increasing rental value of owner-occupied housing. Uh, you, uh, the GDP is uh, designed by political lobbyists in the United States. They consider interest charges as GDP. They consider rent is GDP. And um, uh, I'm sure you've heard me say before that when the head of Goldman Sachs, uh, uh, Lloyd Blankfein, uh, was talking to uh, Congress, he said, you know, the Goldman Sachs partners are the most productive workers in the world. Look at how much money we pay them, you know, for uh, for their uh, uh, bonuses. Well, uh, you remember Goldman Sachs uh, uh, was uh, paid the criminal, uh, made a huge amount, uh, three uh, billion dollars on uh, fraudulent loans to Malaysia, uh, uh, criminal uh, uh, fines. Uh, does when Goldman Sachs uh, uh, adds financial overhead to the cost of doing business. That's considered GDP uh, and productivity. There, uh, the essence of uh, post-classical economics, namely what we're taught today in uh, the economics classes for neoliberalism, there is no distinction between earned income and unearned income. They consider rent, a free lunch, as being a product. Uh, rent that uh, John Stuart Mill said landlords make in their sleep is counted as part of GDP. Uh, interest payments that uh, uh, holders of bonds make in their sleep or credit card companies make are uh, part of uh, uh, GDP. So uh, the uh, GDP doesn't really, uh, uh, you, uh, if you don't distinguish between rent and overhead and between earned and unearned income, then uh, it's like having a parasite on your back or a tumor and you think the tumor is part of the body. Uh, there, there's no distinction. So one of the things that I would hope that uh, uh, China, Russia, and the BRICS countries do is redefine uh, what, what real income and product is. And to do that, they'd really have to go back to the 19th century. That was the whole essence of free market economics and classical economics in the uh, 19th century. And uh, all of that's been excluded by the kind of blind spot that uh, the economics profession has 
in the United States. And that's why I keep uh, uh, joking with my Chinese friends. Why on earth would you send uh, Chinese students to America to study economics where they're taught to do to try to do to you what economists have done to the United States? It doesn't make sense. How do you see the G7 countries with all these difficulties that you've mentioned that the European countries are dealing with? How do you see their economy in 10 years? You have to put this in the context of uh, what is happening in the world. And the world is dividing into two camps. On the other hand, uh, I think uh, the European uh, uh, Union head, uh, Joseph Borrell put it, uh, it's the garden of uh, the 1 billion uh, white people, uh, Europe and uh, uh, English speakers, and it's the jungle of uh, the rest of the, uh, the global majority. Uh, of uh, the rest of the world be, besides the gold billion. And uh, you have the uh, Europe and the United States shrinking uh, and uh, steadily uh, going downhill. Uh, and uh, you have the only growth uh, occurring in uh, the BRICS plus countries that are just uh, now in the process of taking shape, in the process of uh, deciding how do we go our own way. What they're doing really is picking up the uh, train of history where it abruptly ended in World War I. After World War I was a big uh, uh, chain, uh, uh, change where uh, the whole Western world took uh, really a wrong detour. And they're going back to that and saying, uh, 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 we're going to have the natural evolution of industrial capitalism and uh, America, England, and Germany in the early 20th century was towards increasing socialism. Everybody was talking about socialism. And then uh, World War I ended all that because of the Russian Revolution largely. And now they're realizing we don't, the, uh, socialism is not uh, what happened uh, under Stalin in uh, Russia. Uh, that was not, that was uh, uh, its own sui generis. Uh, as they say. Uh, but now we're going to do socialism in a, a much more balanced way uh, that will include uh, uh, the new Russia. Uh, and uh, we're going to resume uh, the whole uh, development. And uh, this development is not going to include the United States and Europe, who can only uh, try to play a disruptive uh, interference function. And uh, the rest of the world doesn't need American interference. Well, the problem, uh, the, the other part of the environment, of course, is global warming that is uh, uh, increasing, and you're going to have rising sea levels, you're going to have drought, you're going to have all sorts of agricultural problems, you're going to have environmental problems, and also the fact that uh, the United States has only one uh, policy uh, variable that it has, and that's atomic warfare. It, it, it doesn't have an army, it, it's not going to be able to uh, ever have uh, re uh, recruit soldiers to occupy a country. The only thing that the United States has to offer the world is refraining from bombing it. Uh, and uh, that all that can do is let the rest of the world say, we've got to be separate from you. You know, uh, we're not going to attack you. We don't want to take you over. We really just want nothing to do with you. Goodbye, Europe. You see President Putin and uh, Secretary uh, Lavrov saying this uh, in one speech after another for the last year. Uh, Putin had felt uh, betrayed, sort of. He felt that, you know, we really had a hope that uh, uh, it, the logical thing to do would have been for uh, Russia and Europe uh, to join together for mutual gain. 
but the problem in economic thinking, especially in Marxist thinking, is you think that everybody's going to act in their self-interest. And that's not happening. As you pointed out with your first question, Europe has not acted in its self-interest. Uh, and uh, you cannot say that America is acting in its own self-interest. It's acting in the self-interest of a very small minority of the 1%, basically, not the 99%. Uh, and the 1%, uh, uh, when it it's, uh, takes control of uh, government planning uh, and transfers planning from uh, public agencies into Wall Street and the financial centers, its time frame is short term, hit and run, uh, take the money and run. Uh, we can all go and live in uh, uh, New Zealand in a, a bomb shelter if it gets uh, too hot in, in the world, or we move to the equator, which is going to be less affected by global warming than uh, the uh, tropics are going to be uh, affected. Uh, so you're, you're really having uh, a split in the whole uh, context uh, for the Group of Seven, and the Group of Seven will basically be uh, uh, American satellites, and uh, they'll just be left behind uh, while the rest of the world goes its own way. And uh, you'd think logically uh, that uh, if the group of seven were to act in their self-interest, they'd join Eurasia. They'd join the whole world doing uh, uh, economic, doing social development in a more mutually beneficial way. Uh, but that would require an intellectual revolution, uh, almost on the level of a religious revolution. You are talking about this kind of partnership between East and the West. We have G20. Why the G20 doesn't function? What's the problem with G20 in your opinion? Because they're the world dividing into two halves and uh, one half won't deal. The, uh, the, the garden is unwilling to work with uh, countries that are in part of the jungle. In other words, uh, the world has a choice socialism or barbarism. Most of the G7 as the barbarism lobby. The rest of the world is the socialism group. And uh, you can't have barbarism and socialism together. It's either or. Of course, they weren't can't work together. They're, they're alternative views of how economies and society should evolve. Not uh, There can't be a, a compromise between life and death Either you're alive and living or you're dying. How do you see the Brexit expansion policy regarding these new members, Iran, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Egypt, Argentina, Ethiopia? Are we going to see some sort of new partnerships in the future with these countries that don't necessarily agree with each other on each and every issue, but still can work in harmony? Well, they don't have to agree with each other. We're not talking about uh, a single world government that they're all going to send uh, 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 members to a, uh, a, a parliament. Uh, obviously, that has not worked uh, very well for uh, for the European community. Uh, but uh, what they have in common is how do you restructure international trade, international investment, and international uh, debt and credit uh, along different lines than those which the United States designed in 1945 uh, as a means of breaking up the British Empire and absorbing the British Empire into the American Empire and uh, uh, designing a world that's dependent on U.S. credit and U.S. investment and U.S. Uh, technological monopoly. Uh, uh, how do we, uh, we all have an interest 
in uh, having a kind of trade patterns and investment pattern uh, and uh, infrastructure development that helps us grow together. So uh, instead of one country benefiting is a zero sum game, which is the US European neoliberal model, how do we uh, have mutual gain? Well, you're going to have to create an alternative to the World Bank, an alternative to the IMF uh, that provides credit without insisting on anti-labor austerity. Uh, you're going to have to have uh, an alternative to the International Criminal Court uh, and really an alternative to the United Nations that doesn't let uh, the U.S. and its satellites have veto power to prevent any kind of international policy. So you're really having a global fracture. You're going to have two worlds. You're going to have the garden uh, uh, essentially turning into a jungle and you're going to have what the Europeans call the jungle turning into the garden. Iran, Saudi Arabia, UAE, these are main producers of energy, of oil, together with Russia. How the BRICS would benefit from these countries? We have two big, two giants in the room, China and India. Well, it looks like India is not joining this. Uh, India is, uh, the United States has convinced India uh, to forego the gains that it could make uh, with China and the rest of Eurasia. Uh, and uh, uh, it's uh, like uh, India uh, has been convinced that it would be best to, you could move India off the coast of Rhode Island uh, along with England. Uh, and uh, uh, let, uh, since India so often admired England, let India destroy itself as England has destroyed itself, emulate the English, uh, 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 commit economic suicide and become a satellite. Uh, uh, don't be part of the Belt and Road Initiative. Try to make an alternative uh, Belt and Road. And the result will be that India uh, is left out. So uh, the United States uh, uh, is, is focusing on trying to pry India away from the rest of Eurasia. And the result will be that uh, the whole Eurasian continent just sort of leaves uh, the southern extent uh, behind unless India uh, changes its uh, uh, political philosophy and its uh, dependence on the United States uh, and the wholesale bribery and corruption that is so rife in India. And uh, the question is, can India uh, overcome its corruption and its uh, political rottenness? And uh, it's uh, doubtful uh, that it can. So uh, th the question is that uh, Saudi, uh, uh, the deal with Saudi Arabia is, well, right now, Saudi Arabia, you've been, uh, 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 the deal that America has told you since uh, 1974 was you can charge as much money as you want for your oil, but all of your export proceeds for your oil, you will have to recycle to the United States. You can't spend it on uh, buying American industry. You can't spend it on your own industry. You have to buy US treasury securities to fund our military spending to surround you so that we can conquer you and take you over if you ever try to be independent. Uh, if you don't uh, lend your money to the United States, we would consider that an act of war. Now, I've sat in on State Department meetings at the White House where uh, it was put in just uh, such blunt terms as that to Saudi Arabia. Now, what's the point of Saudi Arabia exporting its oil simply to build up uh, uh, financial claims on the United States that the United States can wipe out just like it uh, confiscated uh, $300 billion of Russia's foreign reserves 
it can confiscate Saudi Arabia's uh, foreign reserves. Uh, if Saudi Arabia uh, instead would make uh, arrangements with uh, China, Eurasia, and Central uh, Central A, uh, the Islamic countries of Central uh, uh, Asia, uh, they they would uh, take an equity position in helping build up these economies. And again, it would be mutual growth. It would They would be a complementarity uh, of economies. Uh, and so that would uh, leave Saudi Arabia in a much stronger position. And in fact, if it does not break away from the United States, uh, then the United States uh, is going to try to uh, continue to split Saudi Arabia away from Iran and away from the other Near Eastern countries. Uh, but on this Saturday, you're having uh, the Ayatollah uh, from Iran visiting Saudi Arabia, and you're now having uh, Saudi Arabia, the Arab countries, Iran, uh, overcoming all of the uh, uh, splits within Islam to say the important thing is that we preserve the Near East as an economic Europe uh, unit, uh, and we defend ourselves from uh, the uh, Europe, the joint European uh, and American, the NATO attack. NATO has declared war on us and on the entire world. We have to realize that there is a war on. Uh, we have to with, uh, withdraw from this. The solution isn't to fight. We're not going to uh, militarily fight them. We can't uh, grab uh, any of their financial holdings because they hold our financial holdings. All we can do is say goodbye. We're going our own way. And that's uh, basically uh, uh, what's happening. Of course, they, they will benefit much more by having real interconnections with Eurasia than having uh, very tenuous, uh, uh, breakable financial collections uh, with uh, the U.S. government. Uh, it's, uh, it's not someone you want as an uh, economic partner. What's the importance of this Belt and Road Initiative? How would it benefit the countries involved in this project? Well, the uh, the United States has uh, essentially pursued a divide and conquer, economically divide and conquer uh, other countries and made all of their trade and investment uh, geared toward uh, what the United States wants without competing with uh, the United States, without displacing uh, U.S. exports and without producing for themselves what they were dependent on the United States for. The Belt and Road Initiative is uh, starts with a transportation initiative so that countries can be mutually dependent on uh, each other and with a transportation uh, an, uh, uh, infrastructure put in place, they can then develop their own uh, uh, complementary uh, investment of what to produce industrially, agriculturally, uh, uh, in terms of natural resources, water, they can all decide uh, how to make a mutually beneficial, uh, increasingly prosperous economy instead of dealing uh, with the, the NATO economy, whose objective is to impoverish them in its own interest. Do, does, uh, do these members want to be uh, part of a zero-sum economy? 
where uh, uh, NATO's gain is their loss or a mutually beneficial economy. That's uh, that's really uh, what their choice is. How do you see the relations of these countries within BRICS? Do they need a new reserve currency or something else would be much better for them? Uh, the, the word uh, BRICS currency has been misunderstood. No, they're, they're, in order to have a common currency, you, uh, you'd have to have money created by a government. And that means you'd have to have one single government. Uh, there's obviously not going to be one single government of all of these different countries. Uh, there's, there's, uh, there's the, the BRICS currency is not going to be anything like the dollar, anything like the euro. Uh, there's not going to be a BRICS currency. What there will be will be a BRICS central bank. And the central bank will uh, uh, be coordinating balance of payments, credit and debt, among governments. And uh, it will have, uh, essentially, it will be what John Maynard Keynes uh, tried to design, uh, uh, promote in 1944 uh, at the original Bretton Woods Conference. Uh, uh, the, uh, the, it will, the central bank, uh, BRICS bank, will, can create its own uh, fiat currency. It will be funded in the first entrance by currency swaps. Every country that joins it will provide part of its own currency to uh, uh, to the bank. And the bank will have the power not only to relend these currencies to uh, deficit countries that are not able to uh, uh, pay uh, for their own imports at the time, but it can create their own fiat currency. This fiat currency isn't the kind of currency that you can spend at the grocery store or uh, spend on buying an apartment. It's a currency to denominate uh, uh, foreign uh, uh, intergovernmental credit and debt. And one of the advantages of uh, Keynes is how do you prevent one country from ending up with all of the export uh, gains and other countries falling behind? Well, obviously he had in mind, how do you uh, prevent the United States from ending up with uh, uh, all of the money and uh, uh, Latin America and England ending up uh, losing everything. Well, the answer, uh, Keynes said, was if there is an imbalance, uh, then uh, the uh, then uh, the uh, the payment surplus country will exceed its uh, uh, quota and its balance will be wiped out, and the negative balance of debtor countries will be wiped out. The whole idea of international reserves uh, isn't a good thing. Reserves represent the accumulated balance of payments deficits and imbalance in the world economy. A perfectly balanced economy wouldn't have any international reserves because all trade would be uh, in balance. And uh, the, to the extent that international reserves grow, that means that other countries, debtor countries, are indebted to uh, the country uh, uh, that hold the most reserves. And uh, the result has been uh, to favor the United States and give American investors control over uh, the debtor countries. And the result has been to leave the global South countries and many of the BRICS countries with enormous dollar debt. And this dollar debt is a form of 
financial colonialism. And this colonialism has been a disaster uh, for these countries. There's no way in which uh, the Global South countries and uh, many BRIC countries can have the money for their governments to invest in their own infrastructure and at the same time paying this legacy of uh, dollar colonialism that is a result of misguided economic development, misinformed economic development, and a uh, essentially a distorted economic development uh, that uh, has uh, uh, favored uniquely the United States. Uh, part of the uh, split of the global fracture, the world into uh, the uh, socialist versus the barbarian economies is you wipe out uh, the, the dollar debt. Well, all of that was done back in 1931, when uh, the inter-allied debt and the German reparations was, uh, had grown so high that uh, they were threatening, they'd already begun to push the world into depression. And the countries together said, rather than uh, put ourselves into depression, let's cancel the debts that ultimately we owe to the United States. Germany owed reparations to allies, uh, England and France and others, so that England and France could pay the United States for the arms debts, the inter-ally debts that uh, they bought before America's entry into World War I. My book, Super Imperialism, uh, describes this whole uh, period. And uh, the, the whole idea is uh, that uh, you want to avoid uh, that, that whole kind uh, uh, of system. Uh, you, uh, you want to, uh, it's time for a new uh, 1931 uh, moratorium on debt. Uh, but, but this moratorium would be permanent. Uh, we'll say the, the debt is a result of a, a bad policy. We're repudiating the debt, uh, just like Russia uh, did in 1917. Uh, that it's, that uh, uh, the break with uh, the NATO countries has to be just that strong, and that will certainly make a break. The United States is going to try to grab uh, uh, the resources of uh, these countries, but these countries can say. We are sovereign governments. Sovereign governments don't have to pay their debts. Sovereign governments, under the international law, we can do whatever we want. Uh, that's our international law. If you don't like the system, you go your way. We're having our own way with our own international court and our own uh, uh, declaration of independence uh, that's going to be uh, something like the United Nations Charter, but without all of the poison pills that the United States put into the charter. When we look at these countries, the new members of the BRICS, we look at Iran, Saudi Arabia, UAE, are the most important countries in the Middle East, source of energy. Egypt is one of the biggest countries in Africa, Argentina, here in South America. We have Argentina, it's the second biggest country. But among them, we see Ethiopia, what is the importance of Ethiopia? What was the reason for accepting Ethiopia in BRICS? Well, for one thing, you want to be ecumenical. If you're saying we're creating a new world order, you want to make that uh, new world order open to everybody who uh, wants to join it uh, and have a single order. Also, you don't want to leave Ethiopia out and uh, leave a, force Ethiopia to turn to the United States and uh, have the United States have a military base right in Ethiopia where it can threaten all of the surrounding world. Uh, you, you, you have to uh, save these uh, uh, economies from 
dependence on the United States and on the United States military, and you have to free your entire geographic region from American military bases so America can no longer uh, basically bomb you uh, if you don't follow American policy. The United States can always have international interballistic missiles, uh, but there's very little that uh, 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 there's no reason for it to uh, blow up the world, uh, except that that's Christian philosophy, uh, you could say. To, uh, there's a, a lot of American congressmen want to blow up the world because they say Jesus will come. Uh, he'll send all uh, the Jewish population to hell and uh, he'll save all of us uh, Christians and the rest of the world can all go to hell. But apart from uh, the born again Christians in Congress, uh, yeah, there's there's no real lobbyist wanting to uh, blow up the world and start uh, evolution all over again. It seems that those who control the monetary system create money out of thin air in the form of debt. No productivity needed. In contrast, the debtors are obliged to repay the debt with interest and must do so with money generated out of actual productivity. Can we characterize this system where the masters, unburdened by any required productivity, control the money and the debtors essentially work for the masters as a system of debt slavery? How do you call this system? Is that well, debt slavery? Well, modern monetary theory uh, that was taught uh, at the University of Missouri at Kansas City, uh, where uh, my colleagues and I uh, were promoting it for uh, a few decades, uh, shows that governments can create just uh, all the money uh, that they need to spend into the economy. And if the government does not create the money that the economy needs to invest and to finance its uh, infrastructure and uh, uh, private investment, then banks will create the money. But if banks create the money, uh, when you go into a bank and uh, you say, I, I want a loan, uh, the banker doesn't say, well, let me see if we have any money to lend you. He says, okay, I'll write on the computer, here's a loan, and uh, uh, I've created a deposit for you, and you'll sign this IOU, so you have an asset, the deposit, and you have a debt, what you owe us uh, with interest. It's computed on a computer. Now, there's no reason the government can't do exactly what commercial banks do and simply uh, uh, create this money that way. That's why uh, neoliberalism says government should not create it. You have to leave it to the financial class uh, to create. And that way we can, uh, without uh, any effort of our own, uh, we have uh, the monopoly to simply create credit. It's almost as if we could create land or to create oil resources by uh, just uh, pressing a computer key. Uh, and uh, so uh, the, obviously you don't want to create too much credit, uh, but you don't want to create credit that simply is uh, used to uh, lend to buyers of houses uh, to bid up the price of housing and real estate. You don't want to create credit to lend to uh, corporate raiders who will take over a company and uh, essentially drive it bankrupt by uh, uh, taking the money and uh, paying themselves a dividend, uh, leaving uh, a debt-ridden corpse or zombie company uh, in its, its wake. Uh, yeah, money is basically a public utility. Uh, it's uh, just like uh, land, uh, uh, it's created, the land is there freely. Nature provides uh, land freely. Nature has provided oil and gas and minerals 
freely. And uh, society has created, uh, enabled governments to create credit freely. So uh, anything that is freely created should be in the public hands is national patrimony. That was the essence of classical economics in the 19th century from Adam Smith onward. So uh, the, the whole idea, that was the original idea of uh, a free market. And uh, the idea is, uh, well, uh, what is unfree is that now the, uh, these uh, the uh, uh, creditor countries, America, uh, and uh, to some extent uh, uh, Europe, have uh, made other countries unfree. And if you have to spend all of your economic surplus by turning it over to the creditor, you end up in the position that Haiti was in after it got independence. France said you can get independence, but you have to turn, you have to spend the rest of uh, eternity uh, paying us for your independence, and you can never be poor, uh, be rich. Uh, the price of your independence is to become the poorest country in Latin America. Uh, that uh, that is wrong. Haiti shouldn't have to pay this debt. Same thing with Greece. Greece uh, achieved its independence from Turkey. They had a civil war, I think 1824, uh, but it needed to borrow money. So it went to the Ricardo brothers. David Ricardo's brothers made loans to Turkey, and Turkey had to pay so much. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Greece. Greece went to the Ricardo companies, uh, Ricardo brothers, that made the loans to Greece. It's such uh, heavy uh, uh, interest rates that Greece went bankrupt again and again and again throughout the 19th century and couldn't grow. Uh, you want to use Haiti and Greece as what you want to avoid is the future of the third world. You don't want Latin America, Africa, and uh, Asian countries to end up looking like uh, Argentina or other debt-strapped uh, countries, and you don't have to. You can free yourself from debt and say uh, and follow uh, the Chinese model, which was actually the classical model. That's what everybody expected uh, uh, industrial capitalism to evolve into, into uh, money creation and credit becoming a, a uh, public uh, uh, utility. You'll, you'll pick up where the world went off uh, course in uh, World War I, and uh, that's the, uh, the path to freedom. So it's a debt slavery. <laughs> yes. No, it, it, it's uh, essentially a debt cancellation. Uh, it's a, uh, it's an, it was, that's what Germany did with the economic miracle. In 1947 and 8, uh, Germany canceled, uh, the Allies canceled all of Germany's internal debt, except for what the employers owed to their employees, you know, for the last month or so. And everybody was allowed to keep a uh, thousand marks or a thousand dollars worth of marks in a bank account for basic spending. And the reason they canceled it was the debts were owed to the Nazis. And you didn't want the Nazis to emerge from World War II saying, okay, we lost the war, but we have all the money and we control Germany still. Uh, well, uh, if you're breaking away from uh, the U.S. Cold War, and the, uh, the U.S. again and again says, we're in a war. Uh, Biden says, we're a war against China. We're a war against Russia. We're a war against everybody. Well, if you're in a war, then you don't pay the, uh, the, uh, your war opponents. You say, okay, we're at war, goodbye. Uh, we're not going to fight you. We're just going to walk away. We don't have to go to war. You can go to war with each other, like uh, you Americans have gone to war with Europe, fight each other. As an economist, when you look at Janet Yellen talking about the U.S. economy is doing great, we can afford two wars 
the war in Ukraine and the conflict in Israel. How do you see her statement? The here's a trick question again. What is the U.S.? Uh, for Janet Yellen, the U.S. is the wealthiest 1%. And uh, what she says is the 1% is doing great. If you look at GDP, who's got all the growth in national income since uh, the Obama depression began in 2008? All the growth in wealth has been the 1%, not the 99%. For Janet Yellen and the 1%, it's been great. It's good to be the king. Uh, but for the 99%, it's been hell, but that's not her department. Uh, she's uh, the Treasury Secretary. The Treasury, uh, she's acting on behalf of the 1% against the 99%. She's acting as a public enemy. That's her job. That's what she's good at. And of course, she wants to go to war with the world. She said, if, if you want to get a society that's run for the 99% uh, instead of the 1%, you are our enemy and we're going to go to war against you. To the last Ukrainian, to the last Israeli, to the last Taiwanese, fight yourselves. We will, we will stir you up. That's uh, my economic philosophy. That's what I, Janet Yellen, say. Well, to hell with her. The reason behind these endless wars we are witnessing in Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Syria, Ukraine, now in Israel, ongoing conflict, on and on. Is that related to military industrial, as, as Ray McGovern calls it, Mickey Matt, military industrial, congressional, media, tick tank. Is that the reason for these endless wars in your opinion? That's just exactly word for word what uh, President uh, Biden said the other day before Congress. He said, uh, yes, we can afford the, the war in Ukraine and Israel because the arms that they're using employ American labor. He said, if you want to be employed, if you want your living standards go up, you have to make the arms to kill other people. We, you will get rich and be able to afford to pay rising rents and afford to pay your credit cards and afford to pay for your automobile loans by producing arms that we can tell other countries, uh, fight to the last Ukrainian, fight to the last Israeli as uh, uh, the war spreads, fight to the last uh, Taiwanese, if we can convince Taiwan to go to war with China. That's exactly what you don't need a Ray McGovern, who I have a great admiration for, I listen uh, uh, to say it uh, because he's considered to be a critic, just look at what President Biden said. His argument is just exactly that. Uh, we're, we're, we're at war for the military because that's the all that we can produce now. Uh, we can't compete industrially. We can't compete uh, uh, in uh, technology. The one thing we can compete is uh, the ability uh, make we can sell arms uh, to have you people fight each other uh, uh, instead of joining together and making an alternative to the kind of world that we have planned for you. Just before wrapping up this session, one more question about Africa. What's going on in Africa? It seems that the China and Russia are playing important role in Africa. On the other hand, we have these G7 countries, especially the U.S. and France. How do you see this battle in Africa? In Africa, are the African go to the direction of Russia and China, or they finally stay with the U.S. and its allies? Well, I, uh, you've seen them just kick France out of uh, Central Africa. The whole uh, French territories are going the way of Algeria uh, now. So they've already uh, got rid of that. I think that the African, uh, I've, I've met quite a few uh, African leaders and many of them, quite frankly, are very opportunistic, but following their own opportunism, they've got everything they can from the United States and Europe. There's nothing more that they can get. 
what they can get uh, from uh, China, Russia, and uh, the BRICS Plus is uh, uh, getting free of all of the uh, debt that they owe uh, the United States and uh, European uh, colonial powers, they can free themselves from the old colonial powers and uh, start all over again. Uh, whether they will do so in a corrupt way or in a non-corrupt way uh, is beyond my ability uh, to know. I have not been uh, uh, very successful in uh, uh, de dealing with uh, with uh, African businessmen, but uh, who knows? Uh, uh, they, 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 the only option that they really have is uh, to realize that uh, their ties to uh, the NATO countries are, are over. Uh, and they're now they, they can sort of join the whole anti-colonial uh, uh, march uh, out of the colonial epoch.